Hey everybody, welcome to the Boning Soul Podcast. Thanks for joining me again. It is uh, just a few days before Christmas, so I hope your guys' holidays, holiday seasons, and all that stuff are are going uh, are going good. I hope you got all your shopping done. For a change, I do. Um, for a change, I'm actually happy with the gifts that uh, I purchased for my wife because I have the I, I have absolutely no creativity whatsoever, and I'm terrible about like you know picking up on clues and writing stuff down, you know, for for future reference. And I'm always scrambling at the last second so this year I actually I think I'm, I'm pretty pretty happy with uh, with with what I got so anyway not not to, not to kind of brag but I hope you guys are are in that in that boat too to save yourselves like some last minute scrambling so um, anyway today nothing new to report really um, didn't really do a whole lot still been working um, still doing that that UPS driving thing I don't know what's gonna happen afterwards but I've applied at a bunch of places and uh, yeah it's going good as far as that goes Today, uh, today's a Sunday. Yes, today's Sunday. I spent the day pretty much making sausage. I still had um, a ton of that uh, uh, mountain lion that um, my former boss uh, shot in Colorado last year, and I got you know all the meat from it. So we made another. Me and my daughter made about 11 pounds, 11 like one pound logs of uh, summer sausage. Turned out awesome. Again, I love making this stuff, and she really gets gets into it. She really enjoys doing that kind of stuff. So. Um, you know she's she's not so much into the hunting right now she's she's not she's not turning out to be like a very outdoorsy kind of girl as far as that goes which is fine um but she loves cooking and she loves cooking with me and 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 doing all the stuff and she knows where meat comes from and 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 all that stuff so i I don't have any issues uh issues there so we had a great day making sausage um they're cooling off right now as we speak and uh that's that's pretty much what we've been doing so anyway uh today's guest is a gentleman who is one of the, like the original like YouTube channels as far as like the outdoors goes and like and shooting and in archery and things like that goes. Uh, the 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 name of the channel is Wingman One One Five. You've probably seen his stuff. Uh, it's a guy by the name of Jonathan Heffron, and um, he lives out in uh, he lives out in San Diego in California. And super interesting guy. I mean, really, really nice guy to talk to. I had a great conversation with him. Um, he's he's one of the ones uh, I, I mentioned this to him that you know I've for some reason it's like you know like some channels you just watch and and you don't you just realize you haven't subscribed to them you just watch the videos you know and, and you kind of pick and choose because he does some other stuff that yeah I'm not you know that that interested in like like air guns and, and things like that you know. But he does a lot of archery stuff, and he's been doing a lot of archery stuff for a long time. And uh, it just dawned on me, like, why haven't I subscribed? You know, so of course, obviously, I subscribe. But he's been doing this. Uh, I, I think we talked about it. I can't remember. We recorded this a couple weeks ago. But he's been doing this for like I don't know, eight over eight nine years, something like that. I think I think is what he said. Maybe longer. I can't remember. Um, I have to re-listen to the podcast uh, to to get the actual time. But anyway, he's been doing this forever. You know, when when YouTube, as far as like this kind of content, was relatively new in the outdoor space. Uh, he was he was doing he was doing videos, and. Yeah, I, I've always thought, you know, they were interesting. They were always, you know, he, he's, he's a guy that just loves, uh, has a passion for traditional archery, has a passion for the outdoors, has a passion for um, exploring. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit, you know, like desert exploring, that kind of stuff. He just, uh, he just likes to roam. He was a, he's a veteran of the Navy. Uh, he's traveled the world, done a bunch of stuff, seen a whole bunch of places, um, you know, and then he just kind of settled in, in, in San Diego and kind of, kind of stayed there and he, you know, 
roams around in the desert, you know, when he can, he explores, uh, just knows a lot of history about the area. I, was, I mean, and that's, you know, when you're passionate about something, that's what you do. And you just, and, and you like, um, you know, sharing that with people and, and he certainly does. So anyway, I'm not going to ramble on too long. Um, again, I had a great, great conversation with him. Really, really interesting guy. Definitely go check out his, uh, his channel. It's wingman115. So uh, without any further ado, here is my interview with Jonathan Heffron. I saw the screen jump, but that was about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Oh, there we go. Yeah, we're... Yeah, my, my, my laptop is slow. No, um, so probably in like another like, I don't know, about two, well, two weeks after this, I guess, right? So probably about two and a half weeks from now. Okay. You know, let, so. Let me know when it goes live and I'll uh, help you promote it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're on. We're recording. Nice. Um, well, on, on with uh, Wingman115, Jonathan Hef- Hefron, right? Is that is that your last name or is it Hefron? Yeah. Uh, well, everybody says Hefron, but... Us Irish people, we call it Heffron. But that's Aha, okay. I, I nailed it. I nailed it because I, I keep screwing up people's names. The last three guests, I messed up something on somebody's name. So this time, I actually, I actually, well, semi nailed it. So um, th- thanks for doing this. You know, this this really works out well for me because every guest I try to get on here, like I'm like central time, right? And right. you're in California. So instead of like begging and pleading for someone to be like doing a, you know, a, a podcast at 11 o'clock at night, you know, cause of dad life, you know, for yeah. in my case, then this works out absolutely perfectly. So it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm glad we could, I'm glad we could do this. Yeah, me too. I, I'm really excited about archery and I'm always, you know, glad to help promote it and talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. So but before we get too deep, do you want to just kind of tell everybody uh, you know, who you are and a little bit about you and your channel and stuff? Well, my name's John. I run the Wingman 115 channel. Uh, I've been on YouTube, gosh, I'm dating myself, since December 8th, 2006. You're like one of the OGs of YouTube. You've been on for uh, That's another reason I wanted to talk to you, but go on. <laughs> so I started out you know, like everybody in YouTube back in the day, we were just posting like trip videos, almost like we would post videos like our mom and dad did with the old super eight movies back when we were kids. Yeah. And then, um, for a while I was involved in scouting here in San Diego and somebody said, Hey, uh, you have this video format. Why don't you start showcasing some of the gear? that you use so you can show some of the, the scouts, you know, to help them better prepare to go out camping and like that. So that morphed into doing gear reviews and the channel has evolved over the years to do uh, traditional archery and uh, air guns and knives and outdoor living skills. And it's, it's been a fun ride. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- we were just talking here but before we started recording and I was telling you, you know, I, I, I recently subscribed, but it's one of those it's one of those things where it's like you almost like take it for granted because I've seen your stuff on for years. Right. And I've watched a bunch of your videos. I haven't watched them all. Um, 
and I actually got hung up on one the other night. It was you ever do one of those when you're like into YouTube or whatever, super late at night, and you're just you're just like you're falling asleep watching something, but you just got to get through it. And <laughs> or if you're lying in bed, and like for me, I'm watching on my phone, and then like you know you, you get whacked in the forehead because you dropped the phone because you fell asleep, you know, and you wake up again. I was watching this one where you're, you're talking about something about Sasquatch. I'm like, I gotta watch this, but I think it's I think it's it's you and a buddy where we're out like scouting or or, or um hiking or, or something like that but for years i've been watching your stuff uh your reviews on um uh, on archery equipment you know you've, you've done you've done all kinds of bows you've done the grizzly i know you're a fan of the montana longbow i am not <laughs> and you do you do a bunch of other stuff and you're into knives and and all kinds of stuff and i'm like man why am i not subscribed it's one of those things you just kind of take for granted like oh i'll just you know click click on you know click on the channel and watch it you know but yeah no, I, I appreciate, uh, one, your viewership and subscribing. Uh, my primary my primary goal of the channel isn't to be like some million subscriber channel, it, although that would be nice. That would mm -hmm. help pay the bills. <laughs> but um, the primary goal is, one, to help promote the sports that I love and one of them being traditional archery. When I started the channel, I really wasn't showcasing a lot of archery stuff on the channel, even though I have been shooting bow for 40-something years. And what really made me do the crossover, because I was doing a lot of air gun stuff at the time, was I started doing uh, the sling bow stuff with um, slingshots, primarily the chief AJ uh, one that he had and it just worked out really good. You know, a chief AJ had reached out to me and uh, we had talked a little bit and uh, I was really intrigued with his passion for that genre and him being in the Guinness book of world records for continuous aerial hits with a slingshot like over twenty five thousand without a miss well so I, I, I don't know this person I, I this is this is uh, a new name to me yeah chief aj it, back in the day i mean he worked out with uh, jack um i think he worked out with jack lalane oh wow back in the he was a bodybuilder former marine i mean he he he's getting up there in years now but he's uh he's lived a pretty exciting life and i started uh, when the slingbow craze was in full swing, I was doing a lot of slingbow stuff. And then um, one of my buddies, uh, Andy Tran, who's been a big help to the channel. We've done a lot of live shows together. He has the uh, Inner Bark Outdoors YouTube channel. And he was bow fishing with a trad bow. And at the point, I... I hadn't owned a trad bow at that point when I grew up in the seven, you know, seventies and eighties, I'm a, I'm a child of the mid sixties. My dad was shooting a Browning Cobra. And when I started being a teenager and, you know, like all teenagers, they want to be like their dad. You know, my dad was an avid outdoorsman, and a shooter and, and an archer. So I started playing around with this bow. Well, one thing you learn is, you know, once you get your tackle all set, you don't like anybody messing around with your stuff, obviously, without your permission. So for my 15th birthday in 1980, 
my father and mother have to give her credit too. She's an avid outdoorsman. Um, they bought me a uh, bear whitetail hunter compound bow. Now, when you think of compound bows, you know, you're thinking of the modern stuff like today. But back then, a lot of the compound stuff was shot traditionally, instinctively, what we used to call a term back in the 70s, freestyle, which the terms changed over time mm-hmm. now, what it means. But back, it's the same thing. It was instinctive shooting. So as a 15-year-old boy in northern Maine living on a homestead, and we would go into the woods behind our house and hunt rabbits and small game, squirrels, and I used that bow for a lot of years, up until I bought a Samix Sage probably about seven years ago. No kidding. You had it that long? Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. And then... Once I, once I got, um, my buddy Andy had a, I think he had a Samick. So I was like, I'm going to try it. I wanted to get into the sport. Samick sages were relatively inexpensive. So you didn't have to just drop a week's pay on something. And, um, I really, it really took to me. I really was drawn to it because of the, uh, that primal aspect of just, it's just me, a stick and a string, no sights, and it just takes you back to the dawn of time when the bow was first invented. Yeah. And I've been hooked ever since. That's uh, so 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 you're so you're in Maine at this point. Let's go through your childhood and kind of as you progressed here. You sure. said you came you came from um, both parents we said were avid outdoorsmen, right? So you were probably um, you grew up hunting and, you know, I'm guessing hunting, fishing, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, stuff that's pretty, you know, in vogue now with the, <laughs> which, which is a good thing, you know. Um, when, when did you, like, I guess, start going off on your own? Or was that kind of early as far as, like, being able to hunt, hunt small game? Did you only use a, a bow, um, you know, shotgun, rifle, any of that stuff? Well, you know, I... I was born in 65. So you got, you got to remember about, think about things in the time frame of when it happened. Mm-hmm. And we, we were living on a homestead probably about 1971, 72 in my grandparents' hometown of Portage Lake, Maine, way up in the Northern tip of Maine in the North Maine woods. And my parents had bought a property and they basically just cut it out of the woods and we had we had property there and behind our property was a railroad tracks was kind of like the buffer zone between civilization and then wilderness and i remember gosh as far back as like maybe 71 or 72 i was 6 or 7 and my father had bought me an old daisy lever action bb gun not a red rider yeah it was like a step below a red rider and we would go to town the general store and for 25 cents you could buy a tube of bb's they were i don't know maybe 250 bb's in there and we would go across the railroad tracks at six or seven and go into the wilderness with our cousins and when they weren't available i'd go by myself and my parents i mean 
they wanted it. They hit, they were like, if, it, if the weather was good, you were outside, you were doing something outside. Yeah. And if you were bored, they, they had a list of chores for you to do. So we always <laughs> found something to do. So that, that became my playground. And when I got older, my grandfather was an old logger. He, uh, him and my grandmother immigrated from Canada in the 1920s. And when I was born, because he was born in 1901, so he was 64. By the time I was 10, I mean, he, he was still running around the woods like a man in his 30s. Wow. And he taught me how to run a trap line. We used to trap beaver. We used to trap muskrat. We used to trap sable and, th- you know, fox and raccoons and such. And in the spring, he taught me how to do uh, tapping trees for sap, for maple syrup, and how to do that. So it was a good it was a good time to grow up in the early 70s up there hmm. in the Maine. That, that, that sounds that sounds awesome. It sounds like a slice of heaven. You know, I, I, I don't think uh, kids kids today would be able to do that and go to the places you went to in their skinny jeans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the thing a safe is place, you know, <laughs> every, everybody's so afraid of everything now. Oh, that the boogeyman's behind everything. And I think it, it's keeping the kids from hitting their full potential, unfortunately. I agree. The boogeyman's in your head, you know, but yeah. I, I'm on board with that. Yeah, that, that that's amazing. It, it's, it's awesome that you had that. And it's awesome that, you know, I, again, even even for the times, um, you know, I, I'm not that far. I'm like 10 years behind you, you know, so I'm, I'm like 46 now. But, um, you know, I, I, I didn't grow up that way. I didn't grow up like I mean, of course, we had it's all relative, right? Like I didn't grow up in the woods or anything like that. But I mean, at the time, I mean, I was, you know, walking, walking to school, taking buses and subways. Yeah. I grew up uh, just just north of Toronto, actually. Um, you know, so going back and forth, I mean, we had a lot more, I guess, responsibility. And I don't know if there was any like more or less bad people in the world, or maybe we just didn't know about them, you know, but I mean, people just kind of learned to, 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 you just, you just did things more at yeah. a younger age, I think, you know, without being so afraid of everybody and, and, and everything, but I don't know. So, so how, how long, so how long were you in Maine till uh, you obviously, I, I'm, I'm guessing we haven't got to that part. You probably get to it, but I'm, I'm guessing you were in the air force. Is that where the wingman comes in? I was in the Navy. I was in Naval oh, okay. aviation. So oh, okay. how, how that started was after high school, I was in limbo uh, deciding what I was going to do, like all young men do. And I got a job at a local lumber mill and it was starting to get fall, early winter. And one night it was, uh, I was working outside. We worked two weeks, days, two weeks, nights. And uh, I was working outside uh, in the dry kilns and it was 20 below zero and it was, it was pretty cold. So after the shift, I got home. And I was complaining about, you know, hey, it was it was cold. There has to be a better way to make a living. And my dad sitting across the table having his morning coffee and toast, one for him and one for our dog. He had to, the dog also had to have a little bit of coffee and toast in the morning, <laughs> which was totally crazy. The dog ate better than us kids, I think, at some time. Yeah. But um, my dad says, he tells me straight up, 
He goes, boy, you either go to college or you go to the military. He goes, but I don't want to hear you whine. <laughs> and it was just that tough love at the time, you know? Yeah. So I went down and I saw a Navy recruiter. And about five months later, I was uh, headed off to boot camp. And that was 1984. And then made my way out here to San Diego. And my first assignment, I was stationed um, at NAS Miramar, the home of uh, Top Gun. So if mm-hmm. you remember the movie Top Gun with Tom Cruise. I used to be able to quote the entire movie. That and well, Top Gun on Wheels, which is uh, Days of Thunder. But yeah, go ahead. I actually <laughs> uh, uh, got to see uh, Cruise on set while they were filming at Miramar back Gosh, I think it was 1984, late 84, and uh, I was in um, a squadron, VF-21, the Fighting Freelancers. We were in Hangar 1 with uh, Top Gun and VF-1. It was a good time. The the movie came out. I mean, the popularity, the fighter jet. It was just a good time to be in the Navy. Yeah. And uh, after that, just decided to stay in San Diego because – San Diego's beautiful town and uh, put down roots here. And I've been here since 1984. Oh my goodness. That's yeah. That's that's quite a, quite a, quite, quite a pretty much. I mean, di- diagonal. I was going to say, you can't even get more opposite corner to corner of the country, I suppose. That's than, what my uh, mom said, you know, <laughs> wow. So, so what did you do in the Navy? What, what was your, uh, what was your role there? Well, I, I was enlisted. I wasn't, I wasn't an officer. Um, I was what they call an aviation ordnanceman, a glamorous name, but it's a tough job. What we do uh, is we worked on the weapon systems of, well, that particular aircraft of an F-14. So we were in charge of all the missiles, all the guns, all the chaff and flare, anything to do with any sort of firepower on that aircraft was uh, our job. That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, you know, when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, it is. I mean, you're on the flight deck. There's a lot of action. You know, the average age, I believe, on the flight deck is like 21 or 22 years old. And it's almost like a symphony or a ballet. There's things going on all the time and everything will kill you. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you get down the intake of a plane or you get hit with a prop or you get blown over the side. And so cut with an arresting wire. Yeah, you just never you, you just never know. And, you know, at that age, you're 10 feet tall and bulletproof. So, right. you know, it, it was exciting and I got to see the world and I got to see a lot of different cultures. And it was a it was a really fun time in, in my life. Uh, so I'm guessing you were stationed on an aircraft carrier um, for a, a majority of it, or? Well, when VF-21 wasn't deployed, we were stationed at NAS Miramar, which is now uh, a Marine Corps base. But when we were deployed, our our home ship at that time was uh, the USS Constellation. Okay. And she was parked over in Coronado on uh, North Island Naval Air Station. And it was just a drive across the bay, which was good for us. There's a lot of squadrons that would have to fly all their gear and move everything. When they when they deployed for us, it was just a 30-minute 
you know, drive. Yeah. And then we're on the ship and then we're haze gray and underway. But it was it it was an interesting time. Yeah, you know, one one of my biggest like regrets I keep seeing is like is is I never I never served in the military and I always kind of wanted to and I, I never you know it's one of those things where you realize you wanted to do it um, way longer after you know it's it's time for you to do it you know what I mean or it's feasible yeah. for you to do it so um, so thanks for your service that that's great Thank I had you. I had such a um, I had, man, I had, I had, I had such a hard on for like airplanes and, um, you know, like you said, like Top Gun did it, you know, but I mean, I was into planes and things like that. I mean, you know, everything, I was so hardcore into it. I would, I would watch everything and read everything. And I just thought that'd be such a cool job, not just even flying it, but I mean, just like just working on it and just how the, the whole symphony of everything works, you know, with, with, with all that, it's, 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 it's pretty fascinating stuff. So to get to talk to a person that's actually done it is pretty cool. I used to actually work with a guy who, um, also did uh, aircraft maintenance uh, for the Navy. Um, he's, he's, he's quite a bit older th- than you, but um, you know, he's worked you know, with the Blue Angels and things like that and, and you know, just years of, of, of service of working on just all kinds of you know, aircraft systems and stuff. And it's just, you know, it's just, it's just cool. Some of the you know, stories or you know, facts or whatever they tell you about certain things, it's, it's it, you know, I, I, I wish I knew more of you guys. You know what I mean? I, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm one of those like, curious peekers that like reads every single like seal book comes that comes out <laughs> you know and i know everybody that's not a seal probably is like you know what there's you know that's like you know like the one 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 you know half a percent there's like so much more to, to everything that goes on and i get that you know but you know not everyone writes a book i suppose so but i i, I'm, I am one of those guys so I, you know <laughs> if, if i keep asking these kind of like uh these questions that that's why well, it, you know, when people ask me what it's like, I tell them it's it's like when you're a kid and you keep asking your parents if you can <clears> mow on. It always it, stuff's glamorous until sometimes you actually do it. Right. And then you know when you're when you're on station, like we were in the Indian Ocean one time for 81 or 82 days without a day off. It's at that point it starts to wear on you a little bit. It's not as glamorous as it was on day one. But, you know, that one thing it's taught me and that transcends into a lot of things in my life is self-discipline, being the self-discipline to be able to still perform. And, you know, even on the archery side of it is to attack it with the self-discipline of of, uh, like we sail the time. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. Mm hmm. When we're trying to do the same thing over and over, expecting the same result. Yep. And it's having that self-discipline to try to get that same result over and over again. That that's that's that El Dorado, that unicorn out there that I think we're all trying to achieve. Or and that's the fun part, you know, because because you never quite get there. You're always yeah. you're always trying to, you know, you'll you'll get there with four out of five arrows, and then the fifth one is kind of slaps you back to reality, you know. Um, I, I'm guessing when, when you were serving, you, you weren't able to keep up with, with some of your, uh, some of your hobbies, obviously you couldn't go hunting and fishing and stuff or whatever, but, um, when did you make a, uh, when did you, how long after like you got out, did you make a transition into that? And then, and then what, what did you, what did you, what sector did you move into after you, after you left the Navy? Well, when, when I got out of the Navy, um, it was a pretty easy transition because my job, I had a 
I had a security clearance at the time. Mm. So San Diego at that time, or California for that matter, was really big on um, the aerospace industry. So the skill set that I had easily crossed over into the aerospace industry. So coupled that with a security clearance, and I was uh, my first job getting out, I was working on Tomahawk missiles. So um, I did that for about a year and a half. And then President Reagan with Gorbachev signed the INF Treaty. And if you remember that, that was a unilateral, basically downgrade yeah. of nuclear armament. Yeah, de-escalation of everything, right? And getting yeah. rid of, yeah. Which is a good thing. But for my line of work, I, all of a sudden I was out of work. So then I jumped over. I was, uh, at that point, I had built up a pretty good resume as far as like, being a fabricator and building stuff. So it was a real easy transition to jump into the full-blown aerospace industry. And for the next couple of years, I was building airplanes for a company called Roar Industries. And Roar Industries was basically one of the founding fathers of aviation. They invented what was called the drop hammer at the time, which really made, we're talking like 1930s, 40s, that really revolutionized the business as far as being able to produce stuff that you could make a profit at and still be high quality. Mm-hmm. So I was, was it like a machining tool. Is that what that is? Kind of like it was a, a big, like big drop hammer, probably weighed 2000 pounds and it would have a tool and die in it. And you would s- slip in, a predetermined size sheet of aluminum or whatever metal you were using. And this heavy weighted hammer with a die on it would drop and it would basically stamp out the part. So if you were making engine cowlings or certain fuselage parts, it was easy to do that. And then once the, the part was fabricated, then it would go for heat treat and anodizing and paint, you know, and all that. Mm -hmm. But I got into that, and um, at that point, it was the late 80s. And the California being what it is, without going too crazy, because this is a bow channel, um, they weren't business friendly. So <laughs> it wasn't cost effective for a lot of these aerospace companies to stay in California. So Roar Industries left. They they went to Alabama and we weren't given the option to go. So at that point I had there, there was like 11,000 of us that were laid off within like four months. Oh, wow. So when you go for a job, I mean, you're just seeing the same people, same people, you know, and it's just driving the wage down because mm-hmm. there's so many qualified people. So at that point I decided to reinvent myself and I got into the grocery business and I've been doing the grocery business now for almost 30 years will be next year. Wow. That's quite the, quite the shift. Yep. But, you know, I started, started up like everybody at the bottom and worked my way up. And now I'm, I'm an operations manager for a large grocery store out here in San Diego. Hmm. 
wow, that's yeah, that's 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 quite. I'm 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 finding I'm I'm kind of at the same point in my life. I've been doing, I've been in in, in the racing for the last you know like 20 years, you know, and uh, as of like the 25th of of, of November, I am no longer employed there. So yeah. I'm I'm trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life, you know, uh, going into January. You know, right now I'm doing um I'm just doing like a, like a temporary like seasonal like UPS driving kind of thing, but that you know that ends after Christmas basically. So yeah, um you know I'm I'm trying to figure out what uh, what, what 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 path to go down you know the, there's opportunities there but the the crappy part is it's you know you're you're at the very very bottom again you know so um like i guess i got i got that stuff to figure out but yeah so anyway so you 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 stayed in san diego you um you're local and i've i've been to san diego or at least like around san diego like just just a couple times uh-huh. but it's it's not that far a drive out of town or out of you know san diego i guess uh, area to hit the desert to hit some mountains um to kind of get out i mean is that is that kind of where you gravitated to after after you got you know discharged yeah um even when I was active duty, I would always go out, you know, as soon, soon as I bought a car, could afford to buy a car. We were only making $900 a month back in the day. Yeah. And uh, I bought, first thing I did when I came back off my first deployment was I bought an either 1986 or 87 Ford Escort LX. And I was so happy because it had a cassette player and a radio in it. Yeah. And at that point, it's like anything, you know, it was freedom and I was able to travel. I wasn't just confined to base. And I started doing the, the concentric circles, you know, going out a little bit farther, going out a little bit farther. And then I found a place called uh, Rancho Cuyamaca State Park, beautiful state park that's about an hour east of uh, San Diego in the local mountains. And from there, just a little bit farther is uh, Mount Laguna and all that area up in the Cleveland National Forest. And I was just enamored with the big coulter pines. And on my channel, some of the videos I show these pine cones, they're as large as footballs. They're just huge. And I just love the history of the Old West and exploring the mines and all that stuff. So... I just started hitting the back country and, and because I, my upbringing in Northern Maine, not being afraid, you know, to go across the railroad tracks into the scary woods. When most people would take a trail somewhere after a couple hundred yards, I'd be like, no, we're just going to bushwhack. We're going off. Yep. And we would just take off and, and go off trail and found so many little hidden gems. There's so many like, little natural history items from the Kumeyaay Indians and stuff out in the woods from back in the day out here in the local mountains. It, I need to do a video just on that. It's so interesting, the local history that goes back hundreds of years. And it, it, I just fell in love with it. it. I guess it's that desire to, you know, um, that's cliche, but what's over the next hill? You know, what's over the next hill, what's over the one after that kind of thing. And if you, if you're not, you know, if, if, if you're confident in your ability to get back, at least at some point, 
you know, then it shouldn't hold you back. You know what I mean? Uh, just just keep going and keep exploring kind of thing. I know I, I haven't done any kind of like really desert exploring, you know, for real. It would be really or, or mountain exploring, really. But um, I, I can imagine just just like you say, I mean, just ancient artifacts and, um, you know, cool finds just way out in the middle of nowhere that just, you know, even in today's age, like no one's probably seen for a very, very long time. Yeah, it's like on one we me and my buddy Jaime, he's no stranger to my channel. He's also a, a huge trad archer. We were out one time and we found an area where it looked like a lot of the oak trees had been dead. You know, they were starting to die, but you could tell that, you know, 150 years ago that it was probably a lush grove of oaks. And right in the center was this big rock, kind of looked like a submarine. And we went we went to go over to it just to look around, and we found all these holes in the rocks that the native local Native Americans had used as grinding stones to make their um, you know their acorn bread or the acorn flour or maize and, or something. Yeah, yeah, and it was. Yeah. I mean, that's something right there that. You know, 98% of the people won't see because they're afraid to go off trail. Right. No, that's, yeah, that, that, that sounds that sounds like a lot of fun. Do you, do you get a chance to do that? Uh, I don't know how busy your schedule is. I mean, I know obviously, you know, you still do. But, I mean, how often do you get a chance to just, you know, get away and explore right now? Well, I like, I like to do it once a week. But with the current situation, with COVID, and out here, the wildfires have been so bad the past couple of years that the Cleveland, well, basically all the national forests, but Cleveland National Forest in particular, where I'm at, the jurisdiction, is basically shut down until New Year. Mm. They, we just haven't had enough rain to uh, help put off any sort of severe forest fires. And San Diego has lived through two really horrendous forest fires in the past 20 years. Really? It's been really bad. And we get what's called Santa Ana winds. And what happens is, is normally when you're on the coast, you get a coastal breeze, right? The ocean will blow onshore. Well, in a Santa Ana, it turns around. It comes from the desert pushing out towards the ocean. Unfortunately, when that happens, some of the winds get up to 50, 60, 70, 80 miles an hour. And normally, like two days ago, it was in the high 80s, and there was winds, wind gusts over 60 miles an hour. Yeah, so it's, it's, that's crazy. At that point, the flashpoint is just so bad that, you know, I can understand the Forest Service, even though I'm frustrated because I want to get out to, you know, the areas that we love so much, but unfortunately there's a lot of people that don't think fire safety, you know, they're smoking out in the woods or they're mm -hmm. like campfires or they're using a, a stove and it falls over. Yeah. It's just crazy stuff. We, we had one, one, the worst forest fire, I think it was Oh three was from a hunter who was lost that shot a flare in the air. Oh, Jesus. And the flare started a fire that almost – there was thousands of homes that were burnt in San Diego. Good Lord. And it was crazy. 
Yeah. Um, two, two things. Uh, Santa Ana winds. I've, I've experienced that. I was living out there for about a year, year and a half, maybe, um, kind of the Ontario Rancho Cucamonga area, you yeah. know, where they call it the Inland, Inland Empire. And, you know, of course I was riding a motorcycle and this was back in 2000, 2001 ish, maybe. And, uh, I was kind of heading up. Oh God. I can't, is it 15 or 10? I can't remember that. That kind of, yeah, that goes out and goes, it goes West. Yeah. Anyway, I was, I was climbing this grade and it was, it was the Santa Ana winds, you know, for, for that, um, God, I don't even know what time of the year it was. Cause it's always, you know, it never rains. And I remember being literally like leaning over, you know, like you would be in like a hard turn, you know, on a motorcycle yeah. and le- and trying to stay in my lane and still getting pushed into the shoulder. And I mean, I, I remember seeing like like tr- tractor trailers on their sides and I'm like, what am I doing? I turned around and went back home, you know, <laughs> and as, as far as wildfires go, I, you know, I live in Minnesota, so there's really no, you know, wildfire thing going on. Not like you guys have out there. But um, just just a few months ago, I, we were traveling to um, uh, we were racing in, in California at uh in sonoma um so you're flying to san francisco and that whole area up there was on fire too and uh i've never i've never seen that i mean they were blowing away from us so we were safe for whatever but i mean the hotels we were staying at there was people there that were displaced because they're staying in hotels because their homes are all either they're evacuated or they're on fire and a couple days i mean it it didn't get brighter than what it would look like normally at dusk but it looked like um i don't know if you remember the movie total recall yeah um you know when they they got the mars when they're on mars or whatever it is and the sky (laughs) is just all red and ominous it looked like a freaking like vampire horror movie it was it was crazy you know i've i've never i've never never seen that before you know mix that in with the normal fog and stuff that's that's in the you know bay area there and it was just it was just an eerie eerie place to be you know so I i was glad to get out of there you know yeah, about maybe an hour's drive, maybe a little bit more than an hour's drive north in Orange County. There's a really bad one right now up there called the Bond Fire. Bond Fire. Mm. You know, of all names, I don't know why they chose that. Probably because the geographic location was near something called Bond. Mm. But yeah, they're they're having a rough time, right? Who would think in December you would be battling forest fires and people losing their homes and such? But yeah, it's just with urban sprawl, it's just something that we got to deal with. And he, even that on that note with the urban sprawl is like the coyote problem now in the uh, cougar problem that is plaguing a lot of suburbia here in SoCal. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know. I know. I know you didn't want to get political, but I don't care. We can if you want. But it's I mean, there, there's 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 so much to love about California as far as geography and nature and just diverse terrain and everything like that. But I mean, it's just being run into the ground. I mean, you've got wildlife managers that are, that are not hunters or don't care about that. Um, you know, they're still killing mountain lions, except hunters aren't doing it. They're they're being paid to kill you know what I mean? Yeah, um, it's, you know, wildlife, for, you know, forest uh you know, management is, from what I understand, 
terrible, you know, so the severity of these fires are worse because they won't, you know, you know, they won't log anything or fire breaks or anything like that. I mean, it's just, it's just a disaster. I mean, it, for, for an area that has so many natural disasters, it's certainly being the, the I mean, li- figuratively, you know, the flames are being fanned by, by just incompetence and just, you know, just overly leftist thinking, I think, but you know, that's, it's, yeah, it, I, I, you, up won't, and down. You, won't, you won't get any argument from me on that one. Yeah, it's 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 terrible. So you must love it a lot to stay there because there's a lot of people fleeing, you know. And unfortunately, they're fleeing into other other states and just yeah. doing the same thing in those states. It's just you know they've 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 kind of consumed and destroyed where they were, and then now they're just gonna keep voting and doing the same things in in these new areas. You know, it's just, that's just really really frustrating seeing that. Well, but here, um, here's the thing, you know. For me, and people ask me why I'm still here and all that, is I love this state so much. It's such a beautiful state. We have Yosemite. We have Big Sur. We have Death Valley, the lowest of the low. Mount Whitney, the highest of the high. Within an hour to two hours, I could be surfing and skiing. There's so much here to do, so much to see, you know. And that's where I just try not to get caught up into all the minutia of the everyday stuff and just be thankful that I'm able to go out into the woods and do what I love to do. And like like people were saying about this year about COVID and all this stuff. And I've been telling folks, this is one of the best years of my life. I've been able to still travel and do what I wanted to do, you know, um, on the channel and also geographically. And it was funny, you know, you were talking about people leaving California. I was in Arizona about a month ago, and I had gone to the uh, Petrified Forest National Park. And as a kid, I had always wanted to go there. I saw photos, you know, as a kid growing up in Maine. And when you see something just totally different from your environment, you're just drawn to it. And then finally, at the age of 55, I was able to go there. But as I'm driving down the interstate, I saw a billboard that says, don't California, my Arizona. <laughs> and I was like, touche, Arizona, touche. Uh, I love it. I, I've seen those um, on, on, uh, as, you know, on Facebook and, and, and memes and stuff. But you can never tell if it's an actual billboard or if something, you know, someone photoshopped to look really, really genuine. But um, apparently it exists. <laughs> so, somebody, pay, somebody paid hard money for that one. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. I got a good laugh out of that. That's awesome. But Arizona's beautiful too. I mean, you know, the the thing like out here, the hardest thing out here is like the hunting. Past couple of years, I've had a deer tag. And, you know, if you're a compound shooter, you can get out 60, 70, 80 80 yards if you're really confident in your ability with your tackle. When you're a trad archer, for a humane ethical shot, I mean, we're talking 30 yards and under, and I would even go to say even realistically it should be 20, and there's yeah. people out there that will argue with me, hey, I don't care. I just don't want to – my biggest fear is to injure an animal and somebody see an animal run around with an arrow stuck in it. Yeah, agreed. So last year uh, – I was out hunting with Jaime, who was on the channel with me, and I jumped a deer 
and I had a chance for a shot, but it was at that right at the cusp of what I thought was about 35 yards. And I was like, you know what, John, let down, let down. There'll be another time. Yeah. Because I just didn't feel confident at that at that distance that I could place a good heart lung shot. And about 10 minutes later, that deer ran up on Jaime. <laughs> he was he was sit. I texted him, "Hey, I just jumped a deer. It might be coming your way." By the time he got the text, looked at his phone, this deer, I guess, came in and uh, just slid to a halt about 10 yards from him and was making eye contact like it was going to charge him. And he's at this point, he's sitting in a ground blind with his bow by his side with his cell phone in his hand because some idiot named John just texted him and I go, what'd you do? He goes, I casually looked away and down. The deer snorted and then walked around me and then ran off. That's the way it goes. Yeah. The it's, go- these, these mule deer out here, they're, you know, they, they don't get big and old by being stupid. Have you, um, have you had much success with traditional equipment, especially in California? Is that where you hunt mostly, or do you go out of state to hunt too? I guess I should ask. I haven't gone out of state um, with with trad gear, you know, and it and it's a it's a balance for me because I'm so heavy into into the air gun side too. So it's it's one of these tug of war events that's pulling, you know, for my time. Yeah. So, you know. I haven't been able, I'd love, I've been invited to go trad hunting like in Texas and, and, uh, in Arizona for Havelina and stuff like that. And hopefully, you know, once everything settles down with the current situation, we'll be able to do that again. But, um, I would love to hunt Havelina like down, down on the border in Arizona. That that's like one of my dreams right there. Yeah, I, I, that seems like a like a fun animal to chase, you know. Um, you know, I, I'm still trying to shoot something with my with 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 my recurve. I haven't shot anything with a trad bow, um, other than a carp, and uh, I, I wounded a pig. I never recovered it um, in Florida. It was one of those you know over a feeder kind of hunts, you know. Yeah. Um, totally my fault, you know. I, I hate that that happens, but um, I'm still. And this year is just my, you know, I, I've only been out like very very little this year, just because again with schedules with with my schedule and my wife's schedule, we have an eight year old daughter who's like at home now all day. So, you know, there's, there's like zero time for me to get out, um, go anywhere. So this year is pretty much a wash, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's still the weapon that I want to carry, you know, I'll carry a compound, maybe one, I think I carried it once last year. I'm looking at it right now. It's one I kind of like built, quote unquote, built, assembled, you know, the way I wanted it and I won't get rid of it. You know, but, uh, you know, it's, it's sitting here, but I mean, when I, when I reach to go, if I'm going to, if you were to say, Hey, let's go out now, you know, I'm, 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 I'm sitting here in my chair, looking, looking them up on the wall, compounds on the left, my bear grizzlies on the right. And I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to reach right. And I'm going to, you know, and carry that, you know, carry that around with me and, and, and hope something pops out and stands there. But, um, yeah, I, I've always wanted to go, uh, like pig hunting's fun and I've always wanted to go, you know, 
like I said, Havelina. That sounds like like a blast to kind of you know run around those you know just a desert desert environment and and chase those things. You know, I've for some reason I've never had a desire to go like people go gaga over mule deer. I don't have any desire to go after mule deer. Whitetails, yeah, all day long. But for some reason, mule deer just like don't trip my trigger. But Havelina, like I get you know I'm like man, I wish I was there chasing Havelina because it sounds like it's a, like action packed. You know. Oh, they'll run you down. Yeah. It, they're they're uh, have really bad eyesight, but they can hear and smell really good. And I mean, like any animal, if it's cornered or whatever, it you, it's unpredictable. You don't know what it's going to do. Yeah. But uh, I've had friends that have had some heart racing experiences, uh, javelina hunting, and I'm like, man, I want I want to throw my hat in the ring and try that. Yeah, I was so. I was watching. Uh, I, th- I think it was it was like Ranella or something like that. They went. They, they were him. Him and Remy Warren, I think, were were hunting javelina, and they were using a um, uh, javelina like like a baby javelina in distress call. Uh-huh. You know, I, I guess, and I guess it just gets them like really pissed off and like riled up. And then I mean, if they scamper away or run, you know, they they spot you or whatever. And, you know, they blew this, they blew this call and then these things like stopped and then they turned around and charged almost, you know, I mean, it's just like innate, you know, protective mama, mama bear kind of, kind of thing, I think. And I don't know, it, it just seems like a lot of like, you know, fun, a lot of interactive uh, hunting, just like, you know, I, I don't know if you hunt turkeys out there or anything like that, but I love turkey hunting just, just for the interaction. Cause you're always doing something instead of like sitting there waiting for, you know, like a, a deer to trot by. Not that I don't love deer hunting, but I like the whole interactive thing. That's why I love squirrel hunting so much because you're constantly moving, yeah. you know, do, doing that. So that's, yeah, the, I, I would love to get away and do, not that I have like a lot of success here. You know, I don't want to sound like, oh, I've done, there's to do in Minnesota. Absolutely not. But I would love to go and, and chase some of these other animals just to, just, just to get in just different environments and, and um, you know, hunting methods and, and that kind of thing, you know. The hardest part out here is it's so hot. Like the first part of archery season is in September. Yeah. And this year, September, it was over 100 degrees for like a week and a half, two weeks. And I, people were asking me, they go, Hey, you're going to, you're going to go out and, and, uh, go hunt. And I was like, I go, do you know how much ice I would have to carry if I went out somewhere? I'd have to have coolers and coolers of ice just to make sure that, you know, the meat didn't go bad by the time I got home and you would have to almost process it just immediately. Yeah. So normally we usually wait until the second part of the season, which is right. Usually the last week of November goes all the way till the latter part of December. But with everything shut down and everything, me and my buddies were like, you know what? I guess we're donating our tag this year. Yeah. Cause with my job in my line of work in the, in the food industry, it, it's been hard to get out because my schedule's changed based on different restrictions, you know, that's been placed upon us by the, by the state and by the county and whatever local municipality. And it, it's been some long hours and a, a lot of missed vacations and days off. But, you know, when we do get off, we, we try to go out, go to the woods, and I also do metal detecting. I, I'm into so much stuff, it's just crazy. But 
we try yeah. to do a little bit of something just to break the monotony. Yeah, I mean, you're you're like the, you know, not in a derogatory way, but but you're like the desert rat, you know. I mean, you just love being yeah. out there doing all, you know, and and you know what, like people who who've never been out in the desert before, they think it's just complete flat and boring, sandy, windy, cactusy. You know what I mean? But I mean, there's so much out there, and again, I'm I've barely barely dabbled in you know this is when i like i said when i when i lived in california for a little bit i would you know i would go ride my my motorcycle you know and so it would take me down i've been down to san diego like once or twice but just um but never really off road or anything like that but i mean just even the the just the actual roads that you're on and you look off left and right there's so much to see if you just open your eyes and just you know and and see it that it's out there you know it's it's not as bleak and desolate as as it as it you know, and uninteresting as it would seem, you know, if you just kind of set foot out there and explore a little bit. Yeah. You know, get, getting back to like when we were talking about just going off trail back in the day, I wasn't worried basically about getting lost. I was more worried about water because mm-hmm. it's not like it was in Maine or in Minnesota where there's streams, there's little seeps, there's lakes, there's rivers. If there's not a reservoir down here, there's there. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of these places, especially in, in the in the hill country, you have to be careful because a lot of mining operations used a lot of harsh chemicals. You know, they use cyanide, they use mercury. Oh. They used a lot of different things to separate the gold mm. from quartz and a lot of that unfortunately is still leaching out in some of these seeps and areas like that. So you really got to be careful. Really? Uh, or more people die out here from heat stroke and heat exhaustion than, than from anything, than from cougar attacks. And, you know, I tell people the only cougars you got to worry about is the old ladies at the VFW on a Saturday <laughs> night. Uh, you know, if, if you keep your head on a swivel and, yeah, and you're paying attention. I mean, you're you're going to be good, but you know, definitely. You, and that was one of the things, like when I first started my channel, was talking about almost like the Dave Canterbury um, Pathfinder School, the ten C's of survivability and what you bring. And you know, people are always saying, you know, well, you're carrying a backpack full of stuff. Well, I'll tell you, it's better to to have it and not need it than need it and not have it, especially like first aid kit here's a perfect example there's a blm land place east of us about two hours called mccain valley beautiful area i've got i go out there ground squirrel hunting quite a bit jackrabbit hunting for with bows and air guns and a gentleman was hunting during a day it was about 75 degrees so 75 degrees you're in socal what are you wearing t-shirt right mm-hmm. and it he got to gets, be nighttime he gets turned around and we're high desert out there about 4300 yeah. feet it went from about 75 to about 28 degrees that night <clears throat> by the time search and rescue found him he had died from exposure yeah because he didn't have a combustion device to start a fire he didn't bring a jacket, didn't have an emergency blanket or anything, didn't have what he he did every, textbook, everything wrong that you could do. And yeah. he was an older gentleman, too. He, he was in his mid 60s. 
But it just goes to show you that if you don't respect the wild, the wild will the wild will bite you. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I always joke that I pack like a girl. <laughs> even if I'm just go, even if I'm just going in, you know, like very very locally, like you know areas I know and stuff. I just carry a lot of stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just because because I sweat a lot. And same deal. You know, I mean, I I want my jacket with me, even though I'm, I might never ever need it. You know, but then some days you're like, man, I'm glad I have it. Yeah. You know, just 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 simple stuff like that. I think is is um is smart. You know, unless you're literally hunting like you know, a hundred yards into the wood line behind your house or something like that, you know, but, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm an advocate of, um, uh, of a backpack full, full, full of stuff, you know, just, just, to just, just to bring it, just to say you have it. Most oftentimes you're like, God, why am I, you know, I'm digging through stuff just to get the simple things I need in there. But then every now and then you're like, Oh, I'm glad I brought this thing, you know? And the thing is when you're bow hunting, the last thing you want to do is wear a backpack, you know, because yeah. when you're trying to go to full draw, get that, that, you know, those uh, back muscles to expand, mm-hmm. to be able to hit that hard anchor, you know, sometimes it's not the most comfortable thing to do, you know? So I, I see a lot of guys carrying like a, a fanny pack with suspenders type deal. Mm-hmm. They'll do that. Or maybe they, their kit, they can put in cargo pants, you know, their first aid kit and their combustion device and maybe a emergency blanket or something they can fit in cargo pants pockets to help free up a little bit. Yeah. And I think knowledge is the most important thing you can carry too. You know what I mean? Oh, big time. Just, just, just like they say, you know, the, the more, you know, the less you, you need to carry because the more you can do with, with, with less. Um, so yeah, I think those things need, need to be, uh, need to be practiced and stuff. So, um, and, and I know you, I, I know your channel has, you know, dabbles and in, in all that kind of stuff. I mean, you, you kind of go, um, we can get into the air gun thing too. Like you kind of dabble in a little bit of everything on that channel. You got knives. Um, I know you got a custom knife that, that you're putting out, right. That, and we can talk about that as well, but I mean, you, you do, you do air guns, you do, you know, bows, you do, um, (laughs) you know, what, what first, like I said, attracted me to the channel was, I think I was, um, at the time I had bought a Montana and you seem to love that Montana pretty good. So, um, I, I guess we can kind of pivot into like, what are your favorite bows to carry out there? What, what do you, you know, what do you, what do you reach for most often if you were to go out? Oh my God, we're going to start a firestorm right now. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. My, my biggest problem is this. I'm such a huge fan of traditional archery is that I want to shoot every bow I can get my hands on. Unfortunately, that's the worst thing you can do when you're in traditional archery. You need, you know, the biggest thing would be to stick with one bow, learn that characteristics of that bow, and and just shoot the dickens out of it, just wear it out. But I'll you know, I'll shoot the Montana for a couple days, then I'll switch over and I have an ILF bow, the Southwest Archery Stingray. I'll shoot that for a while, then I get bored, and then I have a shrew classic hunter. I'll shoot that for a while, you know, and I'll go back and forth because I'm always just trying be probably because being a gear reviewer, I, I want to learn as much as I can about stuff. So I'm always trying new stuff, but I've just got this addiction with older vintage bows. So the past couple of years, uh, I, I, 
and I tell my friends I need to join a self-help group because I've got this addiction for like bear 76er bows. I've always wanted that bow as a kid, especially, you know, growing up in the seventies, right yeah. in that time frame when, when uh, Fred bear introduced those and just for whatever reason, you know, the parents of that time couldn't afford, you know, whatever, just couldn't make it happen. And as an adult, you know, obviously they didn't make it anymore. So I just, for hours and hours searching eBay, putting in wish lists and things. So now I unfortunately uh, got like seven or eight <laughs> 76ers, but unfortunately most of the limbs are just twisted almost to the point where you can't use them just over age, you know, and the way yeah. people stored bows, unfortunately. And, you know, the way the weather up in Minnesota is a lot different than the weather out here in the, in the desert of SoCal. Yeah. And that's going to affect laminates. It's going to affect fiberglass and, and all that. So, and people are shooting Flemish twist strings now. And that, you know, if they get something that's too long, what do they do? They, they keep twirling it. They think, Oh man, if I keep spinning it, it's going to make it better. Yeah. Instead of just getting the right string. Yeah. And then they're putting all this preload on limbs and it's just a, just a nightmare. So unfortunately a lot of those, older bear 76ers uh the limbs are usually canted you know 10 or 15 degrees and sometimes when i feel manly i'll, I'll go down there and i'll still shoot them i'm like you know what we'll roll the dice we'll see what happens just because i love those bows so much now the 76er was that uh, is that aluminum riser or magnesium riser I can't it was a it's what fred bear called space age magnesium riser Okay. And back in the day, you know, we the Apollo uh, 11 and 13 program, everybody was just in love with that stuff. So when you said space age, it was like, oh, my gosh, you know, yeah, it was like uh, back in the day, we all drank Tang as kids you know, because <laughs> the astronauts right uh, drank it. So, you know, I fell in love. I fell in love with the 76er. Uh, I said on a video the other night because I like doing it the, like these little vlog, archery vlogs in my backyard. It's just a great way to connect with the viewer and talk about archery and help promote the sport. And I was talking about um, my mythical unicorn right now to find is a pristine Minuteman in, in around 45 pounds. And uh, I would really, really, um, I've been searching everywhere, like Indiana Jones, I've been searching. <laughs> and I have not been able to find one. But I did find a tiger cat that was mm. almost like a Minuteman. Magnesium riser, wood fiberglass limbs, beautiful bow. And it was in pristine condition. Limbs were perfect on it. So every once in a while, I break that one out and shoot a few arrows through it. Do you ever try straightening those limbs? Uh, I have. It, it, it doesn't take much to, I mean, well, to, to get them straight again if, if you twist them back the other way. I mean, I've done it, there's a, and it stays. There's a, a couple times I've done that, and I've used hot water, and, and sometimes I've used like a, a hair dryer. And you got to be really careful with a lot of that stuff because you're mm. dealing with fiberglass that's 50 years old. Yeah. And I've gotten them straight, 
and then I'll string them up and shoot them. And it seems like the fiberglass gets a memory. And every one that I've straightened out has always gone back to canting back the way it was. Really? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I, I didn't use um, heat at all. I've, I've got, I've got a, a 1966 Grizzly here. And it had just the slightest. I mean, it wasn't bad, but it had. I mean, you could tell when you when you look down the string. You know, you could you could you could tell it's not. Um, I think it was a lower limb. Um, and I, you know, I just basically grabbed it and while it was strung, you know, like twisted it the other way. Yeah. You know, exaggerated the other way. And that was a few years ago, and it's it's fine. You know, I, I shoot it. You know, almost daily. Um, so maybe I lucked out on it. I didn't use any heat or anything like that on it, but, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, you can have some luck sometimes, but obviously you've tried, you know, well, you got, um, you, you got to remember the 76 er had solid fiberglass limbs, whereas, oh yeah, yep, yep. has a, a laminated maple fiberglass. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yep. Absolutely. So that yeah, solid I, fiberglass, I mean, that, that's some stout, I mean, they built stuff back then to be bombproof. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I gotcha. And you know, I I've emailed uh, I've emailed Bear Archery and Escalade Sports that owns Bear Archery, pleading with them because I get people. You know, anytime I'll post anything with a '76 or people talk to me, hey, do you think they'll ever make another one? Do you think they'll do this or that? And um. They, they basically, Bear Archery just pretty much blows off the trad community. Um, never contacted back. You know, I let them know. I go, hey, I'll tell you right now. If you guys came out with a limited issue, Bear 76er commemorative, commemorative issue, I go, you guys would sell thousands of units easily in the first quarter. No, don't. So. What did they come out with this year? Because I know they came out with a bunch of like uh, um, limited edition stuff. I mean, I, I know they came out with the, um, well, they, they did they did a fifty nine Kodiak with that. They did a uh, takedown uh, Kodiak takedown with that. But there, I thought there was a an aluminum riser one too that they just uh, put. Out. I, I'm I'm not into I'm not into like to, to the metal to the metal bows um, for, for as far as like uh-huh. having any knowledge on them. But they just put something out this year that was that was like that. I don't know if I don't know. I'm cruising over their website while we're talking. We'll see. Yeah. So, uh, have you? I'm I'm going to ask you this since you're pretty candid about it. What is your opinion? We hear this a lot, and and, and as far as like like bear, bear archery goes with traditional stuff. Now you go on any of these forums, and a lot of the Guys will tell you, well, the, the best bows were like in the 60s and 70s. You know, they don't make them like that anymore. The new ones are crap. Um, what, what's your opinion on that? Have, have you shot a lot of the new ones as far as, you know, because you hear stories of like delaminations and this and that, and the quality just isn't there. And, you know, yeah, you got a warranty, but who wants a warranty? Just just have it not fail. What's your what, what's your opinion on that? Do you have a lot of experience with it? Um, in, in the circles that I run... Everybody's shooting the older bear archery stuff. I mean, I I bought a, a grizzly probably <clears throat> probably three or probably four years ago. Time flies by so fast. Yeah. But um, you know, some people have mentioned, you know, especially like on the Montana, that there was one that was uh, brown, 
the Brown, Montana, for some reason, one year that they were having like these catastrophic failures. And I mean, that's going to happen probably with any company. You know, there's going to be a bad batch of whatever. And uh, they're using. Somebody said their riser just blew up, which is weird because they use what's called diamond wood. Yeah. Which is just like an epoxy infused wood under a vacuum so it's almost like rock but it's, it's like solid hardened glue that yeah i mean yeah. resin basically maybe the cure process didn't happen right or or for whatever reason but every everybody that, that that's happened to you know the either the retailer or bear archery directly made it right mm-hmm. either with a refund or a replacement and uh, thank God, you know, nobody got hurt from from what I heard, because, yeah. I mean, I, I've only had one failure. And I mean, it it was a little scary when you're at full draw. But, you know, some everybody's got to understand that the, these bows have a shelf life, all bows. And if you think that your laminated bow is going to last forever, it, it's not. It's probably going to last 30,000 shots, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you're lucky, 40,000, I mean, something's got to give because that's a lot of kinetic energy and shock every time on those limbs. And it's amazing that they last that long. And, yeah. And I, yeah. I, I agree with you. Like I said, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I, I love shooting my grizzly here, but I'm always wondering like, man, how much, how much, longer because i mean i would keep that bow forever if i could and of course and then i up looking like okay well you know if if something happens to this one you know because i like the 64 65 66s you know that yeah. didn't quite have like as much of a rounded you know front yeah. to them um you know I, I, it's more like a not a dog leg but it's more like the angular kind of like front so um i just like the look of them better but uh yeah i i, I was i was just curious if, if you had you know you know, Experience one thing I noticed about those bows, and I mentioned that the other night, I was shooting um, a bow that I had wharfed, and I had bought a older uh, bear compound bow. It was the uh, Black Panther, and it was like circa early 1980s-ish. And if you get the right limb pockets for it there's uh there was a gentleman that made these limb pocket fixtures that went in that you could put ilf limbs on this riser so i had bought a couple sets of them because once i get the bug it's like potato chips you know you can't (laughs) eat just one (laughs) so you know after i built one i was right back there on ebay going oh my gosh i gotta find another another black Panther helmet, you know, so I, luckily I found another one that didn't break the bank and I'm going to wharf that into a ILF longbow here real soon. Hmm. But one thing I noticed about these grips in particular to like these older bows and Fred, Fred bear knew how to make a grip on a bow on these older bows. They fit the hand so ergonomic and it's amazing. This was before supercomputers. So there's some guy doing some major geometry and algebra equations, working it out with some slide rule and a pencil back in the day. And the these are like works of art. 
Yeah. So like the, this Black Panther compound bow that is now been repurposed. It's like it is so fun to shoot because it's comfortable. The riser's a little bit heavy, but like like I was talking about on my video, some people like that if you're target shooting, if you're 3D shooting. Yeah, a bit of mass. Yeah, to help you know, instead of having a stabilizer or putting some sort of weight on the bow. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to uh, the next one that I'm going to do that I'm going to make into a um, into a ILF longbow. And I think you know that that's the wave of the future right now. The ILF bows. You know, ILF when they first came out, a lot of it was just competition bows, right? You're shooting 30 meter, mm-hmm. 70 meter stuff, Olympic stuff. And now that they're making, you know, 15 inch risers, 17 inch risers, 19 inch risers. And what's cool, so cool is you can get short, medium or long limbs. So you can make a perfect match to your shooting style. And for you, it, yeah. if you take the time to learn it and, and talk to people and get the right stuff, you can, you can build basically the perfect bow now. Yeah, I um, I I haven't dabbled in ILF. Um, earlier, I don't know, a bunch of episodes ago, I had Matt Zernzak on. Um, yeah. And uh, it was you know ILF 101. You know, so um, I knew a little bit about it. We got into we got into it a little bit about it. You know, some more detail and stuff. And you know, at the time, I expressed my my desire for some reason. I had I have I still do um, just just desire to to get a, a Hoyt. Uh, uh, Hoyt Satori. Um, yeah, I, I never pulled the trigger on it, you know, because we went into the heart of COVID and uncertainty with, you know, <laughs> jobs and money and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, well, you know, um, so it's still a bow that I, that I would like to shoot. I know there's a ton of other, um, you know, risers and, and, and combinations and stuff out there that I, I, I just haven't dabbled in, in ILF. Um, I think, you know, l- let me get your opinion on this, because because when someone says to you, when someone says on any of these forums, hey, what's a good starter bow? Um, the immediate thing, you know, is my hand and say, well, you know, Sam Sage or one of the more quality, like if you buy it through Lancaster or something like that, uh, like the Galaxy Ember, Black Hunter, whatever, you know, name it goes by, um, you know, for for a little more modern looking one, you can get longbow limbs and stuff for it. And then there's the camp that says um that they would send someone down the ILF path um because of the ability to swap you know from lighter limbs to heavier limbs and all that stuff which you can do with the with the samic stage and things like that what what what's what's your opinion on ILF first for a starter okay cuz i i get this question gosh almost daily mm-hmm. either on an instant message or an email and I usually answer a question with a question. The first one, I ask them, what what type of shooting are you looking to do? So if you're looking to some people, you may live in an urban area where you can't get out into the woods and hunt. So that's going to eliminate a certain genre of bow. You might only be able to shoot indoor tournaments, whether it's 18 meter, 30 meter, you know, whatever. Just pick a number on that. So, or 3D shooting. So that's the first question I ask them. Depending on their response, then I ask them um, how much how much they want to spend. 
and then from there i try to based on my experience of playing with recurves long bows takedown bows takedown long bows ilf bows all i mean i've tested everything except probably uh, the horse bows and um from there you know i'll usually tell them it depends on how serious they are you know either either go the galaxy or the samic or even the southwest archery stuff get your foot in the door relatively inexpensive you're into it what 150 dollars for a bow maybe another hundred dollars for arrows i always tell people get a dozen arrows they're gonna thank me later you know there's <laughs> You're just going to break stuff. You're going to lose stuff. You're going to launch one. It's going to go in high grass. You'll never find it. Just something always happens. Somebody's going to step on it. You're going to break it. Or, you know, everybody shoots all all of them at the same time. You wind up hitting the middle of a shaft and it shatters. I mean, we you can just fill in the blank on that. But the main thing is, is I tell them, go to, try to go to a good local shop if you can. Support your local shops. You know, luck, luckily here in San Diego, we've got at least three, if not four. And um, I mean, every local shop's going to sit down and hopefully take their time. The shop I go to, the bow and arrow shop, Bruce out there, he, they're awesome. And the big thing he'll tell you, and this is why I love that shop, that he will never try to sell you anything. So that was a big point right there. You know, most places you'll go in retail. Hey, I've worked retail 30 years, right? I know how to sell. And you could always upsell somebody. And what I liked about him was he'll never try to upsell you on something. He'll get you in what you want, what you can afford. And then he's got shooting lanes you can play around. That would be the game. If you don't have a shop close by, Maybe there's an archery range you can go to. I don't know about you, but down here in San Diego, everybody wants you to try their bow after a while. If you hang out long enough and they see your face, they're like, hey, John, have you tried this out? This is how, like, I got to try the Centauri uh, a while back. And, um, you know, I, I was like, heck yeah, or the Striker bows or the Black Widows. And yeah. that way you try it, you don't spend in six seven eight hundred bucks or more on something because you you know from experience if a grip fits well for you it might not feel good for me or fit good for me depending on my ergonomics depending on how like me i got a broken elbow so things are going to be different for me than another person and that's okay and that's what i tell folks that's the good thing about our sport is that it's so unique and so diverse that there's almost no wrong way to do stuff. So when people are shooting, unless they're doing something just totally crazy and unsafe, you know, I'll give them the fundamentals, that little Zen moment about archery. And then I let them try to find what feels comfortable for them, unless they're doing something that mechanic wise, you know, is going to be a problem down the road. Mm -hmm. But everybody's brain works a little bit different and citing and processing the information and, and the release and things like that. You know, I, I kind of give them a little taste and let them, let them experiment and find in a controlled environment, find their way. But yeah, right out the gate, make a long story short, 
I would probably start out with one of those starter bows. It, yeah. No, go ahead. Sorry. No, I, I would just do that. That way you don't spend, you know, it, the price of stuff now is so competitive that you can get a lot of good deals on starter bows. And I think now that almost like, you know, you've been in the rate, the race industry that always has a trickle down effect. So all these high end bows and stuff have had a trickle down effect into everything else. Yeah. And it's helped the sport big time. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, as, as far as, you know, my, my take on the, um, the whole ILF thing is just having, having learned the way I, I learn. Okay. And again, this is just, this is just me. It's not, you know, other people. Um, I, I always say that it's, it's more of a more experienced person's bow, or at least once you get maybe like a year of shooting or your first several thousand shots underneath you. And you kind of have a clue about tuning and what's really going on just because there's so much you can adjust. Um, you know, you can do the tiller, you can do an elevator and you don't have to, okay. I understand you don't have to, but you know, you can do tiller, you can do elevated rest, you can do, you know, like a plunger, you can do, um, you know, stabilizers and weights and this, that, and and I think it just gets, um, overly complicated. And, and I am not like an old, you know, old crusty curmudgeon, like, you know, trad has got to be this. I mean, I'm all for modern, tra- you know, trad, make it whatever you want it to be. I just think there's less to go wrong. Um, it's, it's, sorry, not, not to go wrong. There's less that you can make wrong because you start right. fiddling with things. If you don't know what you're doing, um, you know, you could have it set up for you and then say, okay, here, don't touch anything. Just learn to shoot for the next 3000 arrows. All I want you to worry about is, is, is your form and, and, and your release. Okay. That's probably the number one advice you can give anybody with any bow, but that's why I think with, with a starter, you know, I, I, I steer, I, I would, I would tend to steer someone away from the, the, an, an ILF just because the, um, uh, the, the natural curiosity of people to want to like tinker, you know, and then fiddle with things. Yeah. Um, and, and I think you're, and, and you can still get lighter. If you, if you, if you want the ability to get, you know, different weight limbs, start on something really light and move on up. Well, you can do that with any of the entry level bows, you know, you just don't have like tiller adjustments and, you know, springy rests and elevate, you know, that kind of stuff. So that's, I, I was, I just wanted to get, get, get your take on it. And um, I would and, agree. What, I yeah. would, would agree on the ILF side. Um, unless you're getting into Olympic shooting, like I live close to the Olympic training center mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, there's a lot of young kids that are shooting 70 meter and stuff like that. You know, I can understand that, but if you're just looking to just get in to do 3d shoots, to do a, a basic league or, you know, field archery, things like that. No, I, I wouldn't delve into ILF until then. Um, now, I, I have a couple different risers. I have the Samic Discovery that's like you said with a plunger and all that stuff. And then I have the uh, Southwest Stingray that's just a stick and string trad riser, you know. And I like both of them, but I like both of them for different reasons too yeah. and what I'm doing. And I bought – I, I bought the Samic more as like a novelty. I wanted to learn that side a little bit so I could talk about it from experience of being doing it. Mm-hmm. But um, 
if I had to do it over again, I, I probably, I probably wouldn't go that route just because I like the simplicity of like you talked about, you know, there's, I think what the biggest thing that plagues new archers is overthinking the process. (laughs) Everybody want the first thing you want to do, and I'm guilty of it too, is we buy every masters of the bare bow volume. And, you know, we get the, uh, uh, instinctive shooting from Fred uh, Asvel and mm-hmm. start reading books. And I, when we should just be focusing on form and you know, that that's the biggest thing. I even, even though I'm a YouTuber, sometimes the worst thing you do is watch too many videos Yeah, on a, on a subject, just watch one, go down, digest it until you can understand the process. When in understanding the process, when you can explain it back to someone like in like a six-year-old type dialogue, then you've understood it enough. Then you go to the next, the next part of the journey. But um, I, yeah, I, I agree. One of the reasons I started my channel was because I I learned that way. Uh, my wife always says I'm an over-explainer, you know, to to just to an annoyance. Um, but I, I figure if I learn that way, then other people might learn that way. I, I you know, you see a lot of stuff out there about, you know, th- you know, such and such is this. It's like, okay, but you're not explaining why it is that way. Right. And and I thought, you know, if if I, not that I'm some like master master archer or anything like that, but I'm farther along the journey than a lot of other people, and I know the way my brain works. And if I can explain tuning or if I can explain some sort of, you know, principle or how, you know, energy is transferred, you know, one way, whatever, take your pick. I'm just kind of throwing stuff out there. Then I I figured maybe I can help someone else along, you know, and and have that light bulb kind of click in their mind like, oh, now I get it. Not necessarily you have to do it the way I do it. But, you know, you can understand, you know, like Archer's Paradox, for example. Right. We, We everyone kind of throws that out there like they know what what it is but no one ever explains how it gets you know initiated how the thing just right. magically you know by by magically like learns to curve around the riser well it doesn't <laughs> there's a reason for it you initiate it you know i won't go into it but just, just things like that i mean there's all these things that are thrown around that are just kind of taken for granted but no one's really explained the nitty-gritty of it but we're getting there you know uh, there's so much an explosion in the last several years of, of, of traditional archery like channels and podcasts and mine included obviously you know i, I jumped on and um I, I think you're 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 getting a lot more of the the science behind it, you know, like yeah. you know, Trad Lab, you know, Cody Greenwood, that kind of stuff. And, you know, I I, I I like all of it. I like the super detailed geek out, you know, I I I geek out on tuning and things, but I can also appreciate the the simple you know, it's still to me, um, the simplicity of not tuning like a compound, but you know, if if you know, someone gets into this thinking that there's no tuning involved, uh, or if someone tells them that it, it there's no tuning involved, and like for somehow like the laws of physics don't apply to this projectile out of this, you know, um, cu- couple bent springs, you know, which limbs are springs, that <laughs> than it does to a compound. Well, they're lying to you. You know, of course they apply, but it's it's just you know the the degree of how deep you want to get into it, you know. So uh, th- anyway, that that's one of the reasons why I kind of got into this. You know, I thought it'd be fun to you know, give my, you know, my perceptions or my, my, um, my take on, uh, explaining things to people. So, well, I think you came on at the right time, you know, over the years, um, Chad Archery, I don't think 
maybe in the past 30 years, could even go back 40 years with the advent and the explosion of the compound bow coming on the scene. I don't think trad archery is seen like a resurgence like it has in the past couple of years. Yeah. We're, I think we're in this renaissance era right now where it, it's a good time to be in this genre at this time. One, we have the materials now that we didn't have back then as far as like glues and composites and things like that. So they can take bows and bow designs to a whole new level that they were never able to do back 40 years ago, 50 years ago. That That's definitely a plus. And arrow technology too. Exactly. You know, I mean, I still shoot standard diameter gold tip trads, but I mean, look at some of these micro, micro, like four millimeter, you know, or I don't know if they're smaller than that, but I mean, that's, that's tiny, you know, little, little, little pins with a, you know, an ax on the front of it. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. Hey, don't discount aluminum arrows. They're making a comeback yeah. too yeah. on a lot of, on a lot of areas. And, you know, the big thing is, is that you're getting a lot of compound users that are switching over because after a compound bow, most most people, average shooter, within a relatively short amount of time can be pretty proficient with a compound bow. And then a lot of people get bored with that after a while, just banging X's all day. So they're starting to come over to the trad side because it's a more of a challenge for them. Yeah. And it brings back, I think we're all longing for a simpler time, those old nostalgic times of the frontiersman, the plainsman, the cowboy and Indian, the primal hunter-gatherer. And I think when you're out in the woods or you're on a 3D shoot with your buddies or whatever, you kind of get a little bit of that and you get that feeling back of, what it just what it might have been you know yeah. years ago to be out there yeah and, I, I i've said before you know i i might shoot my compound maybe once maybe twice a year and after the first five arrows i'm like meh you know i it, it's one thing to carry it and, and hunt with it kind of thing but it's another to just go to the range and just after the, the fifth arrow i'm like okay i can put this down for another six months you know but with my my recurve i'm like okay let's let's run down there and grab the five arrows and come back and do it again and do it again, do it again. yeah <laughs> yeah you know and, and and i recount you know go ahead no you know we think back of our heroes right back back the archery legends you know the the fred bears the ben pearsons the john schultz howard hill gail martin even robin hood but we're living in a time where we got some pretty good heroes right now of our own in trad archery too. I agree. You know, we got Ron LeClaire, who I mean is a legend in his in, in his own time. We got Henry Bodnick of Bodnick Bows. Uh, you know, I I've talked to Henry before, and I, I told him I go, "You're a modern day Fred Bear." I go, "You are so passionate about traditional archery, and you are such a good." role model for the sport you you are the modern day fred bear mm -hmm. and it what what's crazy is that i ordered my shrew i call i called up the shop ron leclerc the legend himself picks up the phone hmm. it's like 
you could have knocked me over with a feather. This is somebody that when I was a young kid, he, especially up in your neck of the woods, you know, where he, he's at up in Michigan and that area, you know, he, he basically was the beginning of like a hybrid longbow. Yeah. And he was winning championships and he was doing trick shooting, shooting coins out of the air. And I mean, we talked for like 45 minutes just about archery and it was just amazing. And that's what I love about our sport is that people are so approachable. Um, you know, you got guys like Joel Turner now and Tom Clum Sr. And even YouTubers like Greg Richards from 3D Archery mm-hmm. with his buddy Jeff Krug of The Knocking Point. Yeah. You know, all those guys, they're a little bit di- – they bring something different and unique to the sport, and it all has value. You know, even like Jason Sankoviak, traditional mm-hmm. – your competition, traditional bow hunter, wilderness podcast. I, I love that guy. Yeah. You know, yeah, he, he, he and I talk weekly. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's, a good guy. He's, he's helped me out tremendously. Yeah. He's a good guy. Yeah. We got Clay Hayes. We got Jeff Cavanaugh. We got down in Australia, the new sensei. You know, we got the push with Zernzak and their crew, mm-hmm. Jimmy Blackman. Heck, even on the on the outlaw side, even Tex Grebner with Tex Grebner Outdoors. Right. You know, they, what what I'm trying to say is there's something for everybody in in our genre and that that's pretty awesome you don't get that in a lot of genres no you don't and like you said they are approachable like i mean if you were to you know send let's say an instagram message youtube message whatever you get to talk to these people if either through that or like they'll pick up the phone and be like hey give me a call and i've had that happen over and over and over again I don't think if you were to say, hey, um, Levi Morgan, I want to talk to you. He's got I mean, not that he he, he wouldn't because he seems like a genuinely super nice guy, but he, he's just not on that same approachable level just because yeah. of the of the stardom. You know, like you can't you don't have that line of communication like you do with with, you know, the people that we just talked about, you know, so um, that's, let's give that's, a shout out to yeah. to all the all the small boyers as well. Yeah. You know, the. Tolke and you know Timberhawk bows and I mean there's hundreds of all these little big gym and all all these little small cottage industry folks mm-hmm. that are really really the vanguard on the on the tip of the spear of our sport and it any one of those I mean you can either email them call them ninety percent of them are going to pick up the phone and talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of the shrew, actually, I, I just uh, ordered a um, uh, a Java Man um, Elkhart. Nice. Which, uh, you know, and, and 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 Greg was you know building the shrew you know shrew bows um, before you know he went off Back on his own kind day. of things, right? So um, yeah, I mean, a lot of these people, like you said, are just really really approachable, super nice. Um, you know, when I when I I shot, I, I was shooting a, a Tolkien Pika for a little bit. You know you know, call, called up over there and, you know, ta- talk to Dan, you know, it's, you, you don't, like you said, you don't, you don't get that with, with, uh, too many other people. I mean, when was the last time you, you picked up, you know, anybody that shoots like, a, let's say a Matthews picked up the phone and talked to, um, you know, Matt McPherson right. <laughs> you, or you even know? the bear archery people. <laughs> or even, <laughs> so, yeah, no, I get it. Um, and, and that's shame on these big corporations that are into the trad archery side. I think one, they're taking advantage of their customer. 
Yeah. They're taking us for granted, unfortunately. And I think they could gain a lot bigger market share if they would just give us a little love and the respect. And I, you know, and I understand compounds are probably 90% of their sales. Oh, I would say more than that. Yeah. But I mean, you could still, if, if you put a little bit of effort into a genre, Fred Bear created a whole market. Yeah. Just going out and filming archery adventures. You know, so I don't, that that's where the small mom and pops are going to pick up the slack and that, and that's good for them. You know, no, uh, 100% agree. Um you you probably noticed it too, like any of the new newcomers from, let's say, the compound side are all of a sudden they're like, man, you know, you guys are so open here. I, we don't really get that on the compound side. Like yeah. even even on forums, you know, yeah. I mean, you you know what, what a dumpster fire like a, a forum thread can turn into, you know, and it's like, wow, you know, I mean, it can happen on the trad side it, and it does. But it's like, wow, you guys are so like willing with information and open and blah, blah, blah. And 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 just all the periphery businesses, you know, like you said, like RMS and Lancaster and Footachaft and whatever, you know, all, all these places are just a lot more open with knowledge and just want to yeah. just sit down and just talk and BS with you, you know, for, for, for whatever. And they're like, wow, we don't, I, I, I'm not used to that. And it's like, well, that's, that's kind of the way it is. I mean, it's a smaller, you know, it's a smaller community, but you have a lot more access to like a direct access to, to talking with those people and developing like some sort of, you know, relationship with them, you know? And I think the, I think the compound companies, it's so cutthroat. They're so, they're so focused on putting out like the next model, like literally like three days after this year's model comes out that nobody, you know, really cares about supporting um, the, the the product that's out there now. Right. Whereas you talk to a boyer, I mean, yeah, they might introduce like a new limb design or a new riser or length or whatever every you know few years or something like that. But they're not like trying to pump like the latest and greatest, you know, and tell you how many you know this one's got, you know, this one IBOs at uh, three, you know, three thirty five, but next year's going to be three thirty six. So you got to get that one, you know, because this one sucks now. It's like you know, come on, it's 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 a totally different mindset, you know, and, and I'm glad I'm really not part of it. The biggest problem that uh, the compound guys have, and I remember saying that my dad used to tell me all the time, you know, he goes, "Why, son, why do you need new and improved when old and lousy works really good?" Yeah. And every year, there's always a new bow sight. There's always a new stabilizer. There's always a new cam. There's always there's always something. And at the end of the day, that arrow's still got to fly to the target. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that, I agree. That at at what point? I mean, when we're talking about arrow speeds and things like that, you know, because people, well, the bow shoots, you know, three hundred and nineteen feet per second at it. Okay. <laughs> and and your point is. You know, that's so duck it. Yeah. You know, I, I I think at that point you you lose the essence of why we do what we do as yeah. opposed to on the trad side. And I think on the trad side, you know, we have that long history of the legends like I just talked about, you know, mm. the Howard Hills on down and, you know, 
everybody everybody wants to uh, to shoot as good as their legends, and that only comes you know when people talk to me. It's like you got to practice. It to me, tra- shooting a trad bow is a perishable skill. Yep. Because you know you can have the fundamentals down, your grip, your draw, your anchor, your release. But it it's a mind science game of of that laser focus on that object and you know like like we were talking about earlier having that one arrow that always shanks you know <laughs> yeah and it's just losing that concentration for just a nanosecond thinking about you know squirrel you know instead of looking at the target mm-hmm. that causes that arrow to shank you know a foot two feet whatever. And it proves that we're human. And the biggest thing I tell folks is have fun. You got to have fun. It, if you take it too serious, you're not going to, you're not going to do it. Unless you're some uber competitive, you're, you're going to do some bare bow thing, but that's down the road in your, in your journey. Have fun while you're, while you're out there, be a sponge and just, take it all in and have a great time. And that's what I do. I get out on the side of my house. I got a little range, 15 yards. I can get out to 20 if I'm lucky. And um, I just go out there and sling arrows and have fun. My nephew comes over and we play little games. And, you know, people ask, well, you do, do you compete? And I go, no, not really. It's because of my line of work. I work weekends, but it's competing's not my bag. You know, I like going out in the woods shooting at stumps, shooting at those big pine cones. And once in a while I'll do a 3d shoot, but we don't keep score. We just go out and have fun, razz each other and play for cigars or play for a beer or do whatever. But yeah, you know, we yeah. have a good time. And we have- the, ju- the journey is uh, certainly the sad, the frustrating part, but it's just, but it's when you get it, when you get it right, that's, that's the, the, the satisfying part too, you know, yeah. not, not to get all woo woo about it, but you know, I, I've, I've recounted on here before, but you know, like last year I was, I was shooting, we have like an indoor range here, like, like five minutes away, um, at a, at a, um, uh, outdoor store here. And, um, so it was me, I was just shooting, you know, and a guy walks in with his buddy, his buddy's never shot before and, um, like ever, you know, and they set him up with one of the, like a demo compound or whatever, and within, I mean, I kid you not, within a half an hour, okay, this kid, um, I call him kid, he's like in his 20s or whatever, but this guy, <laughs> you know, he never shot before. I, he's super excited. He, he's doing nothing wrong. I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing any of this, you know. Um, but they set him up with a compound. They set him up with a release. You know, they're like, okay, here's what you need to do. Here's how you pull back and, you know, uh, you know, look through here, line up that, shoot. And within a half an hour, he's got the same size groups of 20 yards that in half an hour that it took me like three years, you know, and I'm looking over and going, man, you know, at first it's a little like disheartening, like, geez, you know, what am I doing? You know, but then it's like, okay, I know, well, it may sound arrogant, but if he were to pick up my bowl right now, there's no way he'd be able to do what I do. And he, there's no way he'd be able to do what he does with a compound. He may like some people are just naturals. Like it took me a long time to shoot well. Um, you know, some people will pick it up in, you know, in, in the first hundred shots and they're just like, you know, fist size. I'm like, how do you do that? You know, but for me, it took, it took a few years. Now I, I think I shoot really well, 
but um, I, looking back on it, I learned so much through that. Like I tried this method, I tried that method, I tried you know, uh, you know, instinctive and gapping and gap, yep. gap instinctive, whatever. Hold the string here, anchor here, anchor up there, anchor down there. You know, and you 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 develop your own kind of style, your your own method. And you don't really do that with a compound. You just you just yank it back, and it, it stops where it stops as long as it's set for you properly. And you look through the peep, and you line up the pin. You know, it's like shooting a rifle. You know, with you know buckhorn sights. You you, you line up the back, and you line up the front, and you shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, of course, there's a lot more to it than be accurate. Otherwise, we'd all be making a million bucks a year, like like Levi Morgan does. But <laughs> you get you get you get my point. You know, I'm oh, not yeah. saying everyone's going to drill X's all day long. I mean, there's so much more to it. But the the journey that that that's taken me here in the last you know four years is is it's it's I don't know it's really satisfying I really love it. And you know I'm I'm genuinely happy for a trad archer when we're at a shoot and say there's a target 35 yards away and they just drill a 10 on that. Mm-hmm. I mean we we're genuinely jumping up and down high fiving having a good time because we understand that Zen moment like that, you know, you, you've fired your bow and you've seen that as soon as you've released and you see that arrow in flight, you just know it's going right where mm-hmm. you're looking mm-hmm. at. Yeah. And you know, that feeling. And when you see a friend or a family member do that, you're, you're just as happy for that person because you know, that elation of seeing that arrow fly to its mark. Yeah. And what it took to do that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And then there's buddies of mine that can do that over and over again, and then I'm like, bastards. <laughs> 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 Sandbaggers. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Now nah, we have a good time, though. And, they, you know, you need to hang around good shooters, too, to be a good shooter. If you're around yeah. people that are bad habits, just like in life, right? You're going to be the sum average of the five people you hang around. Mm-hmm. Well, if you hang around shooters that aren't serious about what they're – learning the craft yeah uh i mean you might develop bad habits like them too yeah 100 percent. That, that that's why i'm so big into like if you're around somewhere where you can have a mentor somebody that can mentor you i would highly recommend that yeah it's gonna make it's gonna make your transition so much easier and more fun than trying to learn everything by yourself which can be done but it's a process. It's a process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think, did you, did you answer my question earlier? I, I don't know that you did. I think you said you, you shoot all of them, but if you were to, if like zombie apocalypse, like what's, what's, what's the one bow? Are you, are you the, the, I mean the shrew, you know, is it, is it, is it the, is it a longer bow, like a Montana? Do you want the Montana? Do you want the short shrew? Do you want something in between? What, what's your, uh, you know, ra- rating hordes, which, so, you know, in today's day and age, it's not such a stretch that might happen. All right. So this is one of those like 2012 type end of the plants uh, spin off sort of questions. Oh, the Mayans could not have predicted any of this crap, but yeah. Well, maybe their calendar was only off by seven or eight years. <laughs> Probably. Could be. I mean, we're only talking, you know, how many years was their calendar out? But and the Gregorian calendar could be off, but that's yeah. another podcast. <laughs> um, I would go for simplicity. So I'm trying to think something that would be like all weather. Oh gosh, you're gonna nail me down on this one. 
because I'm thinking about everything I own right now. Like I'm going through the file cabinet mm-hmm. <laughs> on everything. Um, I would probably do my Southwest Archery Stingray ILF bow. It's a trad riser, 17-inch trad riser. And the reason being is um, super simple. I can break it down without tools and put it in a backpack and go total gray man. Mm. And I can put it together in almost not like total silence because it's going to click when it when it fits in the limb pocket. Yeah. But you can be pretty, pretty quiet with that. So I would probably go with my um, Southwest Archery Stingray ILF bow. I know, I know, I didn't think about the gray man concept of that. That's a, that's a good twist on that. I, I yeah. like that. I and, like that. And just hopefully I had a backpack or something big enough to hide a uh, 28 and a half inch arrow. I have a really short draw. It's like 26 and a half. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I could really go gray man there. That That's right. You know. Uh, yeah. It'd be fun to try one of those breakdown arrows. I don't know how that would work with as far as arrow flight, but it'd probably yeah, I don't know. I've seen those be too tip, stiff of a spine. But it's I mean, gotta be right <laughs> in a last ditch situation. Then all of a sudden, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull it to like a hard four or five o'clock on you know, in hope in hope that we hit in the center of the clock on that yeah i think i think if it comes really really down to that point i'm grabbing my uh, remington 870 and putting a bear archery sticker on it and calling it a bow (laughs) 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 you know i love the bow and arrow but come on (laughs) yeah hey okay um we're almost god we're almost two hours into this um i do want to talk about one more thing is you got a custom knife that you um that you designed and commissioned um Tell, tell everybody about that. Why why you came up with it? What's what's its main purpose? And where you know people can is is it released yet? I or no? Yeah, yeah. It's okay. been out for it's been out for about a year. No, oh, okay, uh, okay. It's called the Mount Laguna, as you can guess from like my story earlier in the podcast of traveling to Mount Laguna is a place here in San Diego County, and I love that area so much that when it came time. To uh, name the knife, I I told him I wanted to name it after that uh, because of all the memories of being outdoors and adventures up there. But uh, I have a knife out. It's called the Mount Laguna. It's made by Work Tough Gear. Um, it's you can order it direct from Work Tough Gear at worktoughgear.com, or uh, every once in a while if we have enough in stock, they are on Amazon here in the U.S. Outside of the U.S. For my friends up in Canada and around the world, you would have to order from Work Tough Gear. I basically designed this as a hunting and fishing knife based on my experience growing up in northern Maine, uh, watching my grandfather. Remember, I told you the story about the trap line and, mm-hmm. and my dad being a woodsman and my mom even being an avid whitetail deer hunter. And she loves to hunt uh, rough grouse. She's wicked, wicked good with a shotgun. Um, so after watching, you know, all those folks as a kid, I and being a gear reviewer over the years, I mean, I've gotten to 
review hundreds of knives. So with all that information, I sat down and somebody asked me, well, if you could design a knife, what would you do? And I started drawing it out and um, everybody liked it. And I tried to get it made here in the States. The only problem is I wanted to make it to where it was affordable for a working man to be able to afford a knife and not have to sacrifice food on the table or shoes for their kids' feet. Because a lot of knives out there, um, from the makers that I pitched it to, they said, we can make it, but it's going to have to retail for like $250. Mm -hmm. I was like, no. I was trying to shoot for under $100 retail. Because I know how hard my parents for their money as a kid growing up. And I know today how hard folks are still working for their money and the value of a dollar. So um, I talked to Work Tough Gear. We worked out a deal. And about a year and a half ago, we went into doing a prototype. I tested it out for about six months. And then we went into full production. And now we're a little over a year uh, in production. And, um, I just heard from them, uh, the other day that, um, because they're, they're based over in Taiwan and a lot, you know, a lot of people that are in the knife community kind of thumb their nose at Taiwanese stuff. But I'm telling you right now, they're the Taiwanese know how to make knives. Taiwanese uh, steel's pretty good too, isn't it? I mean, well, we're using a uh, Bowler K110 steel. That's an Austrian tool steel. And I wanted to use a steel that was um, more corrosion resistant. It's not quite stainless steel. Mm-hmm. So if you purchase one, you're still going to have, I'm sorry, you got to do knife maintenance just like anything else. You can't leave it wet. You can't leave it sitting in the Kydex if you've been out in the cold or high humidity. You're going to have to do some sort of knife maintenance. Right. But it is corrosion resistant. It It's a variant of uh, D2 uh, tool steel. Okay. And what's and, the steel called again? Uh, Bowler K110. And it's okay. an Austrian tool. It, trust me, I, I have dealt with a lot of different steels in my career as being a reviewer. And this is a very good steel for this knife. Um it it's a four inch long blade. People ask me why I didn't go longer is because I made it to be a utility tool. If you're gutting fish, if you're caping out that elk or you're gutting that deer, it's made like a surgical instrument to be able to, to be able to put it in different variations in your hand and, and to do all the things that I saw like these masters that were trappers and hunters as a kid be able to do with a knife mm-hmm. and and it was like okay i'm gonna try to take based off of what i've seen as a kid and try to bring it to the 21st century and i think we did a great job with it um you know like anything i'm not gonna say that my design is the latest and greatest and it's the next best thing since hot buttered toast Everybody is hands are ergonomically different and everybody's going to get a different feel. But for majority of the people that, um, that test this knife out, they try it out. They really enjoy it. They really like it. If you got super uber large, big hands, then 
you probably will not like my knife. My the handle might be too short for you. But if you got medium large and under, there's a lot of different variations that you can hold that blade to to really make it work. Yeah, knives are a, a funny thing, just like just like bows. You know, like grip yeah. grip is everything, and I think that's important. You know, to to fit. Um, like I don't know if you've tested a lot of Benchmades. You know, um, the Benchmade knives, but the grips on Benchmades for some reason, like where where it skinnies down, where your uh, your index finger or thumb would kind of grip it. You know, yeah, is just way too thin. I mean, I would just rather like a like a full length, like the same thickness you know or width yep. or whatever as, as as like your 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 middle finger and wing finger whatever it would grip onto i it feels like i'm like pinching you know something with with my um thumb and forefinger with those and i i, I love the blades i love i love the quality on on bench mates but i mean i, I can't work with one it twi- yeah. you know it twists around in my hand it's just you know so yeah i i, I hear you on 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 the on the grip part so what what are they retailing for then they're retailing for around $98. Okay. Yeah, so you're under that $100 price point. That was the point that I wanted to come into, that somebody could have a good, hardworking, functional blade that was of really good quality. And like I said, that same knife, the exact same knife, specs, steel, I talked to three different knife makers, would would have been minimum $250 here in the States. Yeah. Just because of all the added taxes and the cost of doing business and mm-hmm. just everything that is on top of it. And a lot of good blades are made in Taiwan. A lot, majority of your Spyderco blades mm-hmm. are made out there in Taiwan. Oh, are they really? And Work Tough Gear is really being recognized globally now as like an up-and-comer and world knife maker they just won a big award uh at a knife show uh over in asia and you know in that market over there uh like japan they're big into overlanding and stuff like that they just love the mount laguna design for their their small overlanding trips they have because suzuki samurais are still big over there they still make them really so they're out there with the suzuki samurai with a rooftop (laughs) tent and they're out there doing their thing. You know, they're having fun. I, I, I used to have one of those things. Me too. It, it, it got a little sketchy when it got windy. <laughs> like really, really windy. Out, <laughs> here, to... out here for the desert, it was perfect. Oh, it was, yeah. yeah. It was light. You could get into canyons super easy. You know, it. you weren't getting anywhere fast, but it was geared so low. It was a great four by four. Yeah, I, I used to be into four wheeling a lot. You know, I, I, I had a I had a Wrangler and a Cherokee that I, you know, not that we do the rock crawling that you know you guys do out west or whatever. But I mean, I had like the lift and the air lockers and this, yeah. that, and the other and all that. And I was back in my tinkering with car days, you know, before uh, before dad life. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. there there is there is there is hope for you because uh, my girl, I I remember going through all that with my girl too. And you know what? You enjoy those years because they go by so fast. Oh yeah, I I, I wouldn't trade it. You know, uh, it's it, she, she she's a ton of fun. So, um, all right, man. So we're just a touch under two hours. Anything else you wanna you wanna touch on or any say or uh, give, uh, out, I, give out your I just want to thank you for I just want to thank you for having me on your podcast. 
Uh, I want to thank the listener for enduring two hours of <laughs> us talking. <laughs> and I'm just very appreciative to uh, the community that has welcomed me in and made me a part of it. And if I can help the community in any way, uh, I'm glad to do so. And with that, I, I thank you so much for having me on your uh, podcast. Oh, not a problem. It's uh, it, it's been fun. Thanks for coming on. I, I enjoy these. Uh, uh, I, I told you we could talk about anything, and you know, two hours in, you know, it's that's that's kind of how these things go. So, well, may, maybe we'll do this again, and I'll delve into the Bigfoot side. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go rewatch that. Maybe not tonight, but I'm gonna go rewatch that because that was one after that was like. Like I said, it was like eleven something, and I was super tired. And I, I started, I, you know, when you when you like, okay, I'm gonna re, I'm gonna rewind and 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 watch it again, but you fall asleep at the exact same spot again and again and again and again. Yeah, you're like, I'm going to bed. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. I promise. <laughs> so, all right, man. Um, hang out on the line with me here uh, after we stop the recording. And uh, all right, so everybody, um, you know, go 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 check out Jonathan. It's uh, Wingman One One Five. Um, he's you know a huge YouTube channel. Like I said, he's one of the the OGs. He's been doing YouTube forever, so there's a ton of content out there. You put a lot of stuff on Instagram. Um, also, go check out uh, Boning Soul YouTube channel um, and like, share, subscribe, all this stuff. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'll talk to you guys next time. Thanks.